Thanks for listening to the ODI podcast, covering inspiring stories of data use and impacts around the world. Today's guests are Lynette Kwamboka, coordinator of Kenya's Open Data Initiative, and Sandra Elena, coordinator of the Open Justice Program at Argentina's Ministry of Justice and Human Rights. Lynette and Sandra join me here at ODIHQ in London as part of the Open Data Leaders Network, which is a program for open data leaders from around the world to get together, discuss common challenges, and learn from each other. So this podcast will run in two parts. In the first, we'll discuss engaging people in open data initiatives, what works best in your regions, and what needs to be done to strengthen data infrastructure. In the second half, we'll talk about your experiences as women in data and your visions for the future. First off, I'd like to hear a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got into open data. So Sandra, let's start with you. I began working on open data four years ago. I used to be a working at one of the, the biggest think tanks in Argentina. And this was a, a center for a study of public policy, so we relied on data. Uh, but we, we were having uh, very strong difficulties to find the right data for our research. So I decided to study why was that. And we were doing some advocacy to promote the publication of data and as my field of expertise is the justice sector, I conducted a study, not only in Argentina, but in the Latin American region, about open data, data in the judiciaries. And this is how I began, uh, through the support of international organizations and donors and the local work of my research team at this think tank, I began familiar to open data. Great, thank you very much. And, and Lynette, what about you? Um, my background is in computer science and software engineering, so naturally I'm a geek and uh, always drawn to anything that is um, information and information systems. Um, my journey in open data started back in 2011, so this is my sixth year, and um, it all started when I had just quit uh, my job as a GIS uh, consultant um, to become a, 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 a full-time consultant, really, on uh, various aspects. Um, uh, at that time, the open data uh, task force was sitting and uh, a friend of mine who sat in that um, invited me to come um, and I came in and everyone was quite impressed with uh, the amount of geekiness I was able to pull off really um, and then uh, after that went off to uh, work at the World Bank um, as a consultant on ICT and Open Data was one of the projects and when the World Bank uh, then gave the project to the government of Kenya then they said hey you are the person who understands how this uh, works um, so that since then just uh, been involved. Uh, of course, at the beginning, I had the outlook of open data being very uh, technological, uh, but then over the years, I've learned, you know, to engage more in policy, community engagement, and, uh, you know, uh, creating more awareness in all other aspects as well. Yeah, That's great. So that's exactly what I'd like to talk about next. Um, you both work on engaging different people in open data initiatives, whether it's publishing data or understanding its value. I'd like to talk first about exactly what that involves for both of you and what works well in your experience. Sandra, part of your job as coordinator of Argentina's Open Justice Programme involves encouraging justice institutions to produce and publish open data. How do you go about doing that? Well, we are starting a, this new programme on open justice. So and as I was part of civil society before, I know how important it 
it is to engage the community. So we are thinking our program, not only uh, a public uh, program, but uh, a public-private civil society program. So we, we are implementing different strategies to get community engagement. Um, for example, we, we um, set up a participatory platform for all key stakeholders to have a virtual and a face-to-face -face, uh, space for debate of different um, initiatives that are a priority to the Ministry of Justice. Uh, so we run this platform for the past four months, and we are discussing 70 initiatives, and we provide data and information before each debate. Uh, so, and we have been very successful. We have more than 10,000 people were, uh, participating in the platform. Not all of them working with the data, but we are promoting through this channel the use of data. Uh, and we are launching the first open uh, data justice portal in Argentina and I think in Latin America, maybe. So we are very happy. Uh, to launch this next month, and we are we have high expectation about the engagement of the community, but we know that there there is a lot of training to do, and we want more and more stakeholders and and people that are not from the tech sector to get involved. So we are all also going to do some uh, training and and some uh, nice infographics to help people understand the work that they can do with the data. Do you come across any challenges in promoting open data to civil society? What's been the reaction like so far? Yes, there are many challenges, but I, I, I can say that it's more difficult to, to promote open data, data inside the insti judicial and, and administrative institutions because um, there are some um, barriers or obstacles, and, and there is a lack of understanding of the benefits and the importance of opening up data. But when you talk to people and you explain how this can be beneficial to the community, um, you begin to create and to change a little bit the culture. But, I mean, it's an ongoing process. But at least in, in Argentina, in, there is a lot of expectations in civil society about us doing what has been expected for a long time. Great, thank you. And Lynette, similarly, the aim of Kenya's Open Data Initiative, is, which you coordinate, is to make core government data accessible for researchers, policymakers, ICT developers and the general public. How has the public's perception of open data changed in Kenya since you've been working in the area for six years? Have you seen much of a, a change? There's definitely been a lot of change uh, around the open data ecosystem. I mean, when we started, as I mentioned, um, the project was kind of put up uh, or put out to be this very complex thing for, you know, statisticians and mathematicians and computer people. Um, but then uh, we have found a way of simplifying uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the uh, jargons, the data itself, like Sandra. Uh, we do a lot of visualizations. We do a lot of blogging around that. Um, and what we have found that we have had to translate the information and the idea of open data and people are more receptive now. One of the biggest strategies we have used 
is making the data and the project uh, relevant to people. We have, for example, um, a program where, where we go to the subnational levels to talk to the various county governments and tell them about data. And when we go to each county, we make specific cases and specific examples for themselves. Um, and this way, you know, you start to see how people are just lighting up you know, it's like, oh my God, we never knew that about um, our county. We never knew that about our people. So you're not telling them things that are at very national, very abstract kind of level. You make it very relevant to them. And um, the project is more accepted now. Uh, we started off with a time when people did not understand what it is. I mean, open data was put out to be these uh, transparency, accountability kind of projects. And of course, everyone tries to stay away from that. Uh, but to now where we're talking about more development, more investment, uh, you know, more relevant things to the citizen um, who doesn't care about the government putting up, uh, out information. They care about, you know, is it going to rain today? Do I need to carry my umbrella or do I need to dress warmly? Um, is it going to, you know, is the sun out? Is it going to be long periods of sunshine? As a farmer, how does that affect me? Sometimes, you know, these are users who really don't care that this information comes from the government on some fancy opendata.geo.ke, uh, but they care that they have the information. So kind of translating that to be more relevant to each user, depending on what their case is, has really improved. And we're seeing more acceptance. We're seeing more government institutions now saying, hey, we have data. Please take it away from us. You know, uh, do something with it. Uh, from a time when it was, what are you trying to do? Here's a sample. Do something with it. Come back. You know, let's let's see if, it's, uh, if it still works. So, so we're seeing a lot of positive change, and we're happy with that. Yeah. Right. And speaking of the government, um, something we talk a lot about here at the ODI is the importance of seeing data as infrastructure. We need data, whether it's statistics or maps or sensor readings, to help us make decisions, build services and gain insights. Data infrastructure will only become more vital as our populations grow and our economies and societies become ever more reliant on getting value from data. We believe that there is a risk to seeing data only as a tool for transparency, where it should be an engine of efficiency and growth. We need to give data infrastructure the same importance as our road and railway and energy networks are given. I'm interested to hear how far you think your governments see data as infrastructure. Let's start with you, Lynette. What progress is being made and, and what do you think needs to happen? Just last week, the president uh, assented into law the Access to Information Bill, which is a very big uh, push for us. And when you read through, um, you know, that uh, piece of legislation, there's really not much of the transparency. There's a lot more of let's provide information for better decision making, uh, you know, for better um, access to services and products and, and all that. Um, Data is most definitely, you know, infrastructure. Then I like to say transparency, accountability are pretty much a ripple effect of, uh, you know, data analytics done well. Um, so um, we have, uh, you know, the government of Kenya has really worked hard and through, you know, the program uh, of open data to be able to kind of reach as many people as possible and to show them the examples. Uh, we have uh, several meetings with uh, various government uh, institutions and we show them 
how important their work is by showing them entrepreneurs who are actually doing a lot of work using their own data, by showing them other government institutions that have been able to save time, to save budgets, by not having to go and collect this information, you know, once again, but that have been able to reuse the information in the true spirit of open data, um, you know, uh, for their programs. So, of course, there's the civil society that whose role is really to keep the government accountable and transparent. Uh, but then even the civil society organizations themselves do a lot of programs um, out of the national government, you know, into the subnational, and using open data to understand demographics, to understand, you know, uh, the profiles of people they, they're working with, to understand where resources are scarce and where they need to uh, put that. So we have uh, pretty much changed the narrative from uh, making open data a super accountability, transparency, uh, anti-corruption uh, project, which it still is, but then not making that the focus. And, um, to you know, that has really changed um, the outlook. So um, we are kind of trying to instill that kind of change uh, within government, uh, bringing people to get to know that there's a lot more they can do with uh, open data. We're instilling that change within the civil society and media organizations to say, yes, well, you can focus on this one thing. There's uh, 10 other things you can do. There are you know, 20 other um, business people you can focus on and showcase the, the work that they're doing. And um, using that work to encourage the government to actually uh, be able to uh, produce more. So I think, um, I don't know if this is something that the government is act actively doing, but I feel like the government is becoming a lot more easy and open uh, to having these discussions uh, to open up more uh, information. Brilliant. And Sandra, would you say the same is true in Argentina? Yes, we have similar approach as Lynette, but I think that we are a step behind. Uh, so um, the groups at civil society promoting the use of open data are still on the transparency and accountability stage. And we at the government want to do both, uh, to promote data for decision-making process and for improving efficiency and also to promote transparency. During last years in the country, uh, there were many big uh, corruption scandals. And first thing we did this year was to publish the disclosure statements of assets for public officers. So that was a big transparency issue and media and specialized organizations were uh, doing a lot of work with the data. So I would say that by now in the country um, the open data is more perceived as helping improve transparency and accountability, but our intention to improve public policy in general. So I would say both, um, and we hope that with the new data that we are publishing during this month and next month, we can show how the data can be useful to understand what is going on in the justice sector. And as we are the Ministry of Justice, we cannot um, we we do not produce open da uh, data for the judiciary, so we are uh, making an agreement with more than 50 judicial institutions in the country because we are a federal country, so we don't have one judiciary, but we have um, each one, one for each province. But we are trying to show all this institution how how this is going to be beneficial for them, so they can plan and, and make, make plans for public policy reform uh, more 
oriented towards um, data and what is really going on and not only on perceptions. In the next section of the podcast, we'll discuss equality of opportunity in the tech sectors of Kenya and Argentina, what it means to be a woman in data and visions for an inclusive future. You're listening to the ODI podcast, covering inspiring stories of data use and impacts around the world. If you're passionate about data and its potential, why not join our global network as an ODI member? If you want to learn more about data in all its forms and how to make the best of it, we hold diverse interactive training courses and events. Find out more at theodi.org or tweet us at ODIHQ. We're running a series here at the ODI on women in data because we think there is more work to do to promote equality of opportunity in the tech sector. The WISE campaign reported last year that women made up just 14.4% of the UK STEM force. That's science, technology, engineering and maths. Our series highlights the issues that women working in the sector face and showcases pioneering work of women in the sector. We're keen to gain the insights of open data leaders like yourselves from around the world into what the situation is like in their context for women working in the tech sector. Lynette, let's start with you. Do you think that women are well represented in the tech space in Kenya? Um, I, th- I think my thoughts on this are, are a bit controversial, um, <laughs> being a woman in technology, but I, I'll tell you why. Um, when you look at this, um, there's a nice documentary I like by uh, Welsh, the former uh, Secretary of Labour in the Clinton um, administration, and it's called uh, Inequality for All. And in this, he talks about when women, when Dolly Parton released, uh, you know, working nine to five, which is when women started going back to work uh, to support because the cost of living was going very high and, um, you know, income was remaining the same and it's only men who used to work. So um, women generally went back to work, went into work to to support families. Um, Why do I give that example? Um, In... You know, in the early days of computing, actually, um, women were called computers because they used to compute numbers. Um, there's an interesting uh, movie that is coming out, I think, next year. It talks about the contribution of women in uh, landing the first man on the moon and, you know, writing the mathematics and the code. But when you look at uh, the way computing has been uh, displayed to be now, it's uh, very physical and engineering and mechanical. And when you look at history, a lot of this work went to men. So you're more encouraged as a man, you know, to do a lot more of the engineering as a woman to become a secretary. But then what is a secretary? You're typing and using all, you know, all, all this. So women are more in the soft part of, uh, of, of computing and men have, uh, you know, generally went more into the hardware and, and stuff, but then th- that draws the numbers. And I'll give you one last example. Um, I went to a computer science class, and uh, my class was uh, comprised of 44 people. Eight of these were women. And four years later, when we graduated, there was uh, 29 of us who graduated, and eight of these were still women. So when you think about it, um, there was uh, you know a lot of men who actually dropped out of school. Um, but then sometimes we don't quite talk about that. Um, the numbers have improved. We are at the best we have been in history. 
we have way more women. For the first time last year um, in Berkeley, the School of, of Computer Science had a 50-50 representation of women and men. I think the numbers are, are really improving. I feel like sometimes we might become too hard on ourselves in expecting that we should be at 50-50, but when you look at the graph, we are, women are actually doing uh, very well. Do we have a 50-50 representation? No. Um, that is ideally where we would want to be, but uh, my honest opinion is that we are at a much, much better place uh, than we have ever been in history. So it's about pushing and getting more people to come in. Yeah. And you think that the incentives for, for women are, are there, and you think that women, if, they, if they're interested in computer science, have the opportunities that they need? I, I don't think that we have uh, set up the incentive structure really well right now. Uh, and I say this because of my history, for example, in, uh, you know, wanting to, for example, run a business because I grew up with a mother who was a businesswoman and everyone around me really uh, did all these things. And, and I never saw the barriers that, you know, a lot of girls um, see now. I remember the first time I tried to change a bulb and my brother said, no, you can't do that. You know, you're a girl. And my dad said, she can do whatever she wants. And I said, yeah, I can do whatever I want. And how you know, simple things like those actually changed me and changed the way I do things. Um, two years ago, I interviewed someone for um, an internship, a lady, and, um, and, and, she, and after the interview, I'm glad she waited till after the interview, and she said, um, you know, four years ago, you gave a lecture at, uh, you know, this school, and uh, I remember you asked a question, and I answered it, and you gave me a business card. She said, after that, I had to do computer science, and she went to school, and she studied computer science. And I said, now I have no option but to give you a job. Um, so for me, it is, you know, examples like those where I have seen the more women you have up there, that's the incentive that you need. For me, I think what we need is more women at the top. The more women we see at the top, the more we, we know that it can actually be done. The more young girls can, you know, have their minds and brains tuned into the idea that there's another woman, there's another person like me doing that, it's surely not impossible. I feel exactly the same way. Thank you. Um, Sandra, what about you? Do you feel the same way about Argentina? Well, first I need to clarify that I am not a, a tech person. I am a lawyer and a political scientist. So for me, I didn't have the same barriers because this sector is much easier for women. But my sister is a computer scientist, so I know pretty well how the situation is uh, with women in tech. So for her has been very, very difficult, and it's uh, very competitive and very, very against women uh, in, in the field. So once she took a, a job interview, and they said, why do you really want this job? You're a woman. We just call you because we wanted to know why you are here. And of course, we cannot offer you the job because our manager is going to fire if we, if we that. do. Explicitly. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that was explicit. So you can imagine this is very frustrating and she's usually the only one uh, in, in her meetings. Um, so it is difficult. But I can say that in, during last year, maybe two or three years, this is changing. I was talking to the director of information and data uh, of the Argentine government, and he said that in the very technical uh, part of his team, he has uh, many, many uh, women. And th they are very tough, um, and they are 
some of them are activists for for women rights. So one of them, she is the executive director of an organization promoting women in tech. Um, so you still need to have this strong personality to be part of the tech community in Argentina, which I think it's not what we want. I mean, we want just regular women that want to work in the field. But uh, yes, and he was also telling me that there is a lot of resistance among men when these kind of women are in, in a power position. So they don't want uh, women uh, be their bosses. So this is changing, and I think that this government is very committed to change that. And Argentina actually have to say that in other fields, is, women are, we are doing very well, but the tech sector, I think, is one of the most difficult for women. So as leaders, um, what advice would you give people in the industry to help ensure equality of opportunity? Would it be to, to hire more women? Would it be to change the way that you speak to women in that kind of context? Obviously, that's awful. I'm amazed that that happened in an interview. Are there any bits of advice that you'd give as example setters? I would say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, for me, um, I, I, I feel that as, as much as, you know, we come from a developing country and there's always the assumption that um, there are not as equal uh, rights, uh, you know, the environment is much, much softer for anyone to really do uh, anything. Um, and, and I think, you know, listening to Sandra speak, there's a lot of the kind of uh, matriarchy um, system where we have a lot of single mothers, uh, a, a lot of uh, women-led households. Uh, so um, I think it's about exposure. It, it, it's about changing the mindset of uh, at family level uh, of the children beyond policy. You can make, I mean, in Kenya, there's a policy where um, uh, girls girls' intake is one point lower. So as a girl, if you're one point lower than a, than a guy, you get, you know, an uh, equal platform. Again, as I said, my views on these are controversial. I don't think that should happen. Uh, my hiring policy is the best person wins. So whether you're a man or a woman, I go for quality first. And it's great if you're a woman at that. But for me, it's to encourage women to be um, more competitive. Yeah? Um, I, I meet a lot of women, of course, who say... I want to study computer science. I once, I once met um, a woman who said she quit her job because she was the only person in the room. She was the only person in meetings uh, because she did study computer science and now she's an events planner. And she said that stressed her out because she was the only person in the room. And I thought about me. I said, I really enjoy when I'm the only woman in the room because then here's my opportunity to shine and here's my chance to show you that women can, you know? Um, that we, we kind of need to change the mind shift. I think there has been a lot of talk about how lonely it is when you are the only when you're the minority really um, in the room uh, we don't take enough time I feel to celebrate some of those gains the fact that you are the minority you're the only woman you're the only maybe black person you're the only Latin American or white person in the room what that does what that does in representing you and your kind and I think we probably need to uh, to to, to encourage a lot more of that so that we have more women who say, yeah, I want to, my, my glass ceiling is going to be, I want to be the first woman to sit in that boardroom. Um, as Marisa Mayer says, I, I was probably the, only, the first woman to use the woman's bathroom when you know, she went to uh, this meeting. Um, 
I, I would say let's encourage fasts. You know, if someone denies you a job because you're a woman, then, you know, be the first to, to, to protest and say, no, you, you honestly cannot do that. But for me, I think beyond policy, really, I, I don't think that policy um, will help very much. Um, I feel like the more we kind of try to bend the rules to favor women, um, the more resistance we will have from, from society. I mean, right now, there's a very big discussion around the two-thirds gender rule, which is for every, you know, uh, three people in a room, while, you know, two-thirds have to be represent, have to represent one gender. And mostly, when we talk about gender, we talk about we actually talk about women. But then, even the women themselves in parliaments are not voting for this, you know. Um, so I feel like we shouldn't bend the rules. We should try to encourage the women. And finally, I would say we should start at a younger age. When I was very young, I saw people doing all these things and I thought I could be that. So I feel like we need to start young. Um, I feel like a lot of the programs are now focused at when you go to all the, you know, women in technology or women in leadership, it's it's women who are already in leadership, women who are already in technology. And it's about talking, you know, and I say, when we talk among ourselves, we're talking about how you're going to get um, a raise to become the CEO, a raise to become, you know, project manager. But then there's a girl who doesn't know this exists. You know, we need to start young. We need to start maybe at high school and start to show. And I feel like a lot of the messages right now sound very much like it's us against them, it's women against men, but to just show women this is this is what you can do. And here are the things women like you have done before and why you're probably not special. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, you can do this. You you don't have to feel, sound special. I mean, you're special, but, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's nothing impossible. Yeah. Yeah, great, thank you. So you're both here this week as part of the Open Data Leaders Network. Uh, with five other leaders from different regions around the world. Can you share with us a few things that you'll take away? Any reflections from the week that you've, you've gained? In this new role for me in government, I was eager to meet other people having the same challenges, and this was highly achieved. So I met very good professionals from different countries, um, and we share problems and solutions and this is what I was expecting. Um, we, I think, made good partnership or at least friendship, uh, friendship with some of them. So this was very, very important to be part of a network of people having the same issues to solve and the same interests and, and the same kind of uh, possible solution for their problems. And... On top of that, we had very good sessions and new ideas. In my, in my special situation, I was looking for case studies about how engaging community more effectively. So I think that was also achieved. And well, I, I, I was part of the network of ODI, so I, I knew people here and, and I already known the nice work that this institute is doing so was just to strengthen the links with ODI and with the network and making new friends. 
Um, yeah, I think for me, you know, as Sandra says, uh, just being able to meet different people who um, are doing the same things. And for me, I was thinking about it this morning, which is uh, when people say, oh, people within government don't do much and stuff. And I meet, you know, all these different people who are very passionate about the work that they're doing and passionate about learning uh, on how to solve some of the challenges and, you know, celebrating and sharing some of the, you know, successes that uh, we've all had um, has been quite in encouraging and, and and of course, making friends and uh, making you know creating this network um, that has been quite interesting. Uh, but for me, um, you know, the biggest lesson from that has been that no matter where you are in the world, uh, people are people. You know, human beings are just the same. Um, and uh, we've been able to learn a lot of kind of more structured ways of approaching things, of creating communities, um, of communicating, of uh, you know generating ideas and selling those 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 ideas. Um, so that has really helped. Um, I think a lot of the ways we've been, uh, or at least I have been doing uh, open data in Kenya over the past uh, six years, has been a bit ad hoc. I mean, there's no one like you who's doing something like this around where you are. Um, so it has been a lot of, you know, you come up with an idea. It's, uh, it's like a lab. You test it. It fails. It works. You keep it moving. You learn new things. But it's interesting to now kind of have some kind of uh, grounding uh, where now there's a more structured way of doing things and hopefully this is going to catapult um, our pro projects uh, individually or even collectively to the next level. Yeah. Thank you so much for both of you for, for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the ODI podcast. For information about upcoming episodes, ODI projects, our latest blogs and how to contribute, visit theodi.org. If you ever have any questions or would like to say hi, you can tweet us at ODIHQ.